Welcome to the 52 Pearls Weekly Money Wisdom Podcast. I'm Melissa Joy, a certified financial planner and founder of Pearl Planning. And I'm Melissa Friedenberg, financial advisor with Pearl Planning. Pearl Planning is a financial planning and investment management company located in Dexter and Gross Point, Michigan. We work with clients all around the country. The purpose of our podcast is to explore specific financial topics and provide advice you can use in your everyday life. Welcome back to the 52 Pearls Weekly Money Wisdom Podcast. It's Melissa Joy here this week. And today I am so glad to be joined by Peter Bissett. Peter is a licensed attorney in the state of Michigan, and he has practiced family law for over 10 years. He is the founding member of Peter G. Bissett, PLC, and he practices all aspects of family law, primarily in Washtenaw, Wayne, Oakland, and Macomb counties. Peter, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Melissa. I'm really happy to be here. I'm excited. Well, we're going to get really specific on a topic that comes up during divorce, which is spousal support. So if you're listening to this podcast, you may be in a circumstance where you really need to learn about spousal support or alimony because you're hoping that it applies for you or you're hoping to protect some of your cash flow also um, and someone else may want to receive spousal support. Um, so we wanted to take a deep dive on the specific topic. And I, I think you're the perfect expert to come in and give us some context, Peter. Yeah, thanks, Melissa. So spouse support is one of the issues that often is a kind of a thornier issue when it comes to divorces and it's something that people have a lot of anxiety about, strong feelings about. So yeah, it's, it's a good thing to talk about because um, it really is, um, you know, some people think it doesn't exist anymore, um, but it does. It, it, as you said, it used to be called alimony. The statutes that we have in place now do call it spousal support, but they're, they're interchangeable terms. And um, just at the outset, I should mention that um, while, while what I'll be discussing will be, you know, spouse support is a creature of state law. And so it's mm-hmm. slightly different from state to state. I think most of the basic ideas will, will hold true, but just as kind of a disclaimer, you know, my, my knowledge is based on, um, the law in Michigan. Right. So we're both located in Michigan and I think this conversation will be good context for anyone, but you need to know that your local jurisdictions kind of both laws and in some cases, traditions, right? Like there's not a, a specific calculator for most jurisdictions. Right. Those per- yeah. tend to prevail. Yeah, that's exactly right. So what is their spousal support? What is the purpose of it? Yeah, so the, the purpose of spouse support is essentially um, to allow a person to, traditionally it was to allow a person to continue to live the type of lifestyle that they had while they were married and, and frankly, that they expected to have had their marriage continued. But um, really, that's only become kind of one aspect of spouse support. There really are two very distinct types of spouse support nowadays. It's One is that type of um, long-term or even lifetime, what we call permanent spouse support, um, that is intended to carry out for the, the rest of a person's life. It'll be paid you know, for um, yeah, indefinitely. Um, that is becoming less and less prevalent here. And I think in, in, in most jurisdictions, um, and much more commonly, what you'll see now, as opposed to permanent or life, lifelong spouse support is what we call transitional or rehabilitative spousal support. And so that's basically more an idea of give the person, give the recipient of the spouse support, a, a limited period of time, you know, usually somewhere between say, maybe 18 months and maybe three years 
um, to basically get back on their feet, maybe get some education. You know, if they had a, a bachelor's in a certain area, but then didn't use it during the marriage because the other partner was the breadwinner, you know, maybe they go back and get their master's or something like that. And so that's much more often what we see now is this kind of limited spouse support um, to kind of help the person get back on their feet. I know as a financial planner, when I'm hired with my kind of certified divorce financial um, analyst hat on, then also we're kind of looking at the trajectories of the financial life of each party. Um, And in some cases, it wouldn't be equitable without spousal support. So that could be, in some cases, an argument for more, but it, it gets complicated pretty quickly. Right. Yep. And in in divorce court and um, you know family court is what we call a court of equity. And so while there are laws, there's also a lot of um, discretion for the judges to approach cases on a case by case basis and basically see what what seems equitable in terms of spousal support. Um, so, so typically, who do you see that may be eligible for spousal support? Because the first kind of filter, some people are surprised when it may not be an option for them. So what do the courts tend to look at um, or divorce cases for spousal support? Right. So, I mean, the the quintessential spousal support case is one where you've got a a long-term marriage, a marriage of many years, and a large income disparity between the two parties. That's kind of your, your quintessential spouse support case. And, you know, especially if the parties are older, um, that's the type of case that you may see permanent spouse support. If we have, you know, um, two, let's say two couples in their 60s or 70s, and one was always the the, the breadwinner, yeah. yeah, so to speak, you know, then um, that would be the kind of situation where often you'd see permanent spouse support, you know, but really, as you kind of move on either of those axes, you know, long versus short marriage, and, you know, large versus small income disparity, that's what kind of determines how good of a claim for spousal support that recipient has. So, you know, you'll hear sometimes people have a rule of thumb that for any type of substantial spouse support or anything really to speak of beyond very short rehabilitative, you're usually going to be looking at a marriage of at least 10 years. And so that's kind of a, a rule of thumb that we often use, but it's not, that's not written into any laws. That's not hard and fast. Um, but yeah, that's, that's basically, you know, long marriage, large income disparity. And under Michigan law, there's actually, um, case law has set down 14 different factors that a, a court is supposed to try to apply when determining an amount and a duration of spouse support payments. Um, I, I won't I won't bore your, your audience with going through all of them, but they're they're mostly based around need and ability to pay. So need on the part of the recipient and ability to pay on the part of the um, the payer. Is there anything punitive like? you know, it's your fault or. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, people hear um, the phrase uh, that Michigan is a no fault divorce state as, as most states are, are now. But what that means is simply that you don't have to prove a certain grounds in order to get a divorce. You just have to be able to prove that the marriage can't be reconciled. And that's as easy as telling the judge the marriage can't be reconciled. Whereas, you know, in the past under fault um, jurisdictions, um, you had to actually prove some sort of effect, whether it be, um, you know, uh, adultery or whether it be, you know, that uh, it turns out that you found the person that you were married to was a, a relative of yours, you know, or something like that. And you had to, had to actually prove grounds. But so that type of fault doesn't exist in Michigan anymore. But fault does still exist in the analysis for spousal support and actually in the analysis for property division. And basically what it is, is if you can... 
prove or argue that that one or the other party was essentially responsible for the breakdown of the marriage, that can be taken into account by the judge in determining spouse support. So if you would have had, you know, otherwise a spouse support award of say, you know, $1,000 a month, maybe it becomes $1,300 a month when you factor in the fault aspect of it. So we're talking about judges and, and that um, insinuates courts. And certainly the courts are involved in the divorce, but often, oftentimes you're trying to settle before you get to court. It's um, as a function of both control and, and in many cases, cost of, yeah. that, of the case. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, you know, the, statistically, I, I believe the last time I checked, it was approximately 98% of divorces end in settlement. So, I mean, you're, you're very unlikely to just statistically speaking, have your divorce case end in the judge deciding anything. And essentially the, when the judge makes the final decision, that means that you've, you've went to a trial and evidence mm-hmm. has been taken, witnesses have been called and things of that nature. And as, as I say, that's, that's very unusual. So in most situations, the way you're completing your divorce case is coming to an agreement with your spouse on how all of the various issues are going to be disposed of, one of which is spousal support. So you're going to come to some sort of agreement with with the law as a backdrop, because that provides, you know, that's how you decide who's got leverage in the arguments. And, you know, kind of what would a judge likely do with it is always kind of the elephant in the room. But yeah, generally, you're going to settle a case. And um, that actually ties into the fault idea in the sense that it's very unusual in my experience for a for a divorce case to settle with one of the parties agreeing that there was fault. I mean, generally, generally neither of the parties is willing to say, yes, I was the cause of the breakdown of the marriage. Usually, even if it's a situation where let's say there was adultery, you know, the adulterer is going to say, well, the, the marriage was over before I ever started this relationship. I wasn't getting what I, you know, needed out of the marriage, blah, blah, blah. And so people generally won't stipulate or agree that there was that there was fault. And so usually when you're settling a divorce case, um, fault isn't going to come into play either in spouse support or in property division, just because it's not something that anyone is going to agree to kind of take the hit for. Um, and frankly, the you know, the 14 factors that a, a judge has to apply if it does go to trial are very hard to turn into um, an actual number, you know, I mean, it, there, when it's, when it's things like, you know, the, the party's ages, the present situation of the parties, the needs of the parties, the party's health. I mean, these types of things are hard to actually put into some sort of quantifiable thing. And so, you know, to look at those 14 factors and say, yep, that's, you know, $2,347 a month for 4.5 years. I mean, it's next to impossible, even though that's what judges are asked to do, um, if you go to trial. And so, in practice, what we generally do is we use a, a formula. Mm-hmm. Um, we use a, a, a computer program, essentially, um, and it's just so like you put in so you put in some information about the marriage, and there's a guidance or a guideline as to yeah. what might be appropriate. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I want to I want to give a shout out to a, a colleague of mine uh, named Craig Ross, who is an attorney, is an attorney in Washtenaw County, and also is a former um, friend of the court uh, referee there. And many years ago, he basically just decided it was too hard to try to figure out these spouse support cases. So he literally came up with a computer program. And, you know, most family law practitioners, um, you know, uh, do purchase that program from him and, and we use it. And, you know, judges are not allowed to make a decision solely based on a calculation. Um, but even judges can be um, can take it into account. But when it comes to settling cases, 
you know, putting those quantifiable factors into this calculator, things like ages of the parties, you know, um, income of the parties, those types of things, um, that is what we do to basically come up with a number that is a, at least a starting point for our negotiations, because it's just, it's hard to arrive at kind of common ground any other way. So you run the Craig Ross prognosticator. It's this gentleman's name, Craig Ross. You run the Craig Ross prognosticator. And that's kind of where you start talking about, you know, okay, it came out to say, you know, $800 a month for three and a half to five years. Well, you know, maybe that we probably should be talking around that area and trying to settle this case. I think it's really important as an observer of these cases or in some cases in sometimes um, working with clients as a consultant that you have good financial discovery in advance of running those numbers. So I can think of an instance where a client wasn't going to come out with any spousal support, but there wasn't consideration that she was kind of carrying healthcare for dependents mm-hmm. within the family. Um, you really want to have that information about not just what your income may have been in 2020, which is COVID year and maybe disrupted, but what it's been over time. Um, you know, there's there's certainly factors where the more information for both parties, the sooner um, there's more to work with to get that equitable outcome that everybody's seeking. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, because just as those those factors are to be considered, it's, it's hard to have, make them kind of, synthesize into an actual number, all that stuff is very relevant and it does matter. And it is the things that we can use to argue for maybe going over what the prognosticator would say, or maybe this is a situation where we go under because that prognosticator really can only capture the um, quantitative factors, but the the qualitative factors it, it can't capture very well. And so yeah, I, I, I absolutely love working with certified divorce financial analysts like you that are able to help gather the information and analyze the information and allow us to basically look at these, look at the situation as what it is, which is two real people with their real situations and figure out what is fair here, what makes sense. And all those types of things are hard to talk about without having the information where, you know, yeah, what's the recent years been like, was this a down year? You know, what are their health, you know, it, it, things in, in, in place. Let's look at the tax aspects, aspects of mm-hmm. these things, you know, um, all that kind of stuff is, is so helpful um, in kind of getting to that, getting to yes, you know, where people feel like they've, um, their entire situation has been taken into account. It's been properly analyzed by the proper, you know, professionals who have expertise in that area. And um, while it may not be the number that, that ends up being agreed upon may not be anybody's, um, you know, ideal, it feels fair. It feels like it was reached through a fair process and it feels fair and it's something that they can, um, that they can live with. And, and the, what you mentioned about um, down years and up years, that's actually interesting because that's actually a tricky part about spouse support is, you know, when, when we lawyers settle cases, we kind of leave you with a spouse support award that you're now supposed to go forward with. Right. Right. And it's supposed to capture kind of what will make sense going forward, but you can really only do it with kind of the, a mind to like one moment in time. You're just doing mm-hmm. it based on what seems to make sense based on the information now. And so oftentimes what we see for people who have um, very variable incomes, whether it be someone who works on commission or, um, or, you know, business owner, owners. Perhaps, have, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, oftentimes that makes it hard to come up with an exact monthly obligation. And so in those situations, what I often do is we will 
have a monthly obligation that's maybe based on even maybe the low end or the pre-bonus amounts that the payer makes. And then what we do is we also say quarterly or yearly, we'll look at any bonuses or any extra commission that was received or anything like that. And we'll put in our settlement that the recipient will receive you know, 25% of any bonuses received or something like that. And so what that does is it, without having to actually know it at the time of entry of the judgment of divorce, what the person is going to make over the next few years, you've entered kind of a, a durable settlement that will um, map well onto kind of the financial realities going forward. Yeah, so the, it, it can be very complex or complicated and you need to think through things. Sometimes I, sometimes I, Another, it's it's kind of a division of assets, but maybe related is um, when there's um, stock compensation occurring yeah. where it may not all be exercised or may not make sense for tax purposes. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think it's that in those cases where it does get more complex, that's where, you know, there may be either need to be a financial planner involved, a valuation expert or CPAs or attorneys um, just because they need to understand the mechanisms of the payments. And also, you know, sometimes I hear from a divorcing client, oh, I think she's going to sandbag her income this year or next year. So, you know, it it depends on how much control you have over how, you know, how much can get taken out of the company and things like that. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And and um, especially more kind of complicated um compensation structures and things like that. I mean, I can't tell you how helpful the CDFAs that I've worked with in the past, you know, financial professionals like yourself have been in helping us figure out, you know, how do we kind of break down this compensation? How do we apply a framework to it that kind of maps onto what we wanted to do with the spousal support going forward so that it's really, um, it kind of carries forward the same the same idea, the same kind of settlement that we reach, you know, how is it going to map onto this, you know, a more kind of complicated structure with, yeah, as you say, you know, stock options and things of that nature. And um, yeah, it's just, it's so helpful. So we talked about variability of income. The other thing that you think about when you're someone like us is what else could go wrong. Um, And, you know, once spousal supports kind of locked in, if something happens to the payer, um, if they pass away, then that you're not guaranteed to get the amount that you were originally supposed to receive. Is that correct? Right. That's right. And so um, one of the things that you, so there's, there's issues of uh, modifiability and issues of termination. So, so in terms of, you know, how long, so spouse support can terminate under various different circumstances. You mentioned like the death of the payer, things like that. The way that we handle that is that's something that, um, you know, savvy attorneys will try to foresee basically all of those mm-hmm. termination, possible termination scenarios. And you, you work, you basically negotiate over that. And you, that is part of your settlement. And so, you know, usual kind of um, termination, you know, potential termination events are, you know, the death of the payer, the death of the payee, um, you know, you can have it end on a term of years. You know, we just decide it's going to end after five years or Number on an amount paid, yep. you know, after a certain amount has been paid or remarriage is another one that's very common. You know, you'll have it end if it, if someone remarries. Um, but the, the, the key point there is th- those are all negotiated upon as part of the case, or at least should be, and they should be set, set forth pretty, pretty clearly in your, Um, settlement documents that, uh, you know, these are the terms upon which spouse support will terminate. 
Now, you know, prior to termination, there's this concept of, of modifiability um, versus non-modifiability. And that's kind of another crucial characteristic of your spouse support that needs to be negotiated over in a case is, is the spouse support going to be modifiable or is it going to be non-modifiable? And if it's modifiable, it means that if there is a change in circumstances for either party, whether it be, you know, one party were to get injured and what did, you know, had a different earning ability or whether it be, you know, one party gets a, you know, a huge promotion or something like that. Um, if you have modifiable spousal support, then the idea is if one of these changes takes place, you attempt to negotiate with the other side on a new spousal support, either amount or duration. Um, if you can't come to an agreement with the other side, then you you file a motion and you go to court and you have the judge decide whether it makes sense to modify your agreement. And, and actually, if a judge enters your judgment in your case, essentially if there's a trial on your case, a judge has to order modifiable spousal support, at least under Michigan law. Um, but there's this concept of non-modifiable spousal support, which can't be ordered by a judge, but can be elected by the parties. Obviously, both sides have to agree. But if it's non-modifiable, you pick an amount and you pick a duration, and that that stands regardless of changes in circumstances. So, I mean, if you say five years, you know, $3,000 a month for five years, and, you know, the payer... Um, you know, gets hit by a car and now, you know, has severe mental incapacity, he still has to pay $3,000, you know, every month for five years. And so um, it's, 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 it has the advantage of being predictable um, in that, you know, short of something catastrophic, you know, that it's not going to be modified. If your ex starts making a little more, you start making a little less, still going to be the same amount. You can kind of count on that. But um, it makes for some pretty harsh outcomes if uh, if something like that were to happen, because, you know, you if, if you go to court, even if you're the incapacitated individual, the judge is going to say, hey, if, if you didn't want to be stuck to this number, you know, come heck or high water, you should have agreed to modifiable spousal support. So um, it's that's, again, another very important kind of distinction that should be you know, taught, spoken with, with an attorney, as well as with a financial professional, you know, to figure out what makes most sense for you and then make it explicit in your settlement. In some cases I've seen, um, niche for, especially for higher net worth, um, cases with spousal support, um, the, um, either a kind of divorce disability policy where there was something set up to protect in case of disability, Mm-hmm. Or, um, you know, having a mandate that for the time that the um, money was owed, that there would be some sort of life insurance maintained in yes. order to fulfill the obligations that would have the um, ex-spouse's beneficiary. Right. You And so, and that, that's a really great um, kind of backup, uh, you know, kind of insurance essentially is, you know, yeah, do you take a life insurance policy and you say, you have to keep your ex as the beneficiary of the policy in the descending amount of how much is owed. And so you basically calculate how much still is to be paid if this thing were to, um, you know, go to its full duration and at least that amount has to be payable. And so if, if the payer were to die, the, the payee is not without recourse. They have the, the life insurance and it's really no, it, that works for both parties, it, 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 you know, in that way. And that's a great idea. And that's, that's really, that's, that's savvy. Um, you know, that's savvy lawyering, that's savvy assistance from financial professionals to, to bake that stuff into your settlement, because that's a great way to take some of the real um, harsh 
outcomes, especially of a non-modifiable spousal support award, you know, kind of take some of those outcomes off the table. Yeah, I like that a lot. I think that the other thing that we should mention is that there was a big change to the law a couple years back, um, I believe with the SECURE Act, where taxability for spousal support, the assigned party um, that paid taxes on the income changed. So how does that factor into the situations? Yeah, that really changed a lot for us, more than really I thought it would. I didn't realize how much we were relying upon the the kind of taxable nature of spouse support. So um, just to to flesh that out. So the the change was that before, for any judgment that was entered before January 1st of 2019, spouse support was taxable gross income to the recipient, and it was deductible for the payer. And if you had a recipient that was in a lower income bracket, that nature of that of it being deductible and you know and then on the other side income would allow you to basically keep more money with within the two people and give less to to Uncle Sam. Um, this change that took place that now that affects any judgment that's been entered since January first of twenty nineteen is that. Spouse support is now no longer deductible for the payer, and it's no longer considered gross income for the recipient. And so that ability to kind of um, capitalize on the difference in tax brackets is gone. And it used to be a very um, helpful settlement kind of um, piece that you could you could put more into spouse Secure support. it a little bit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, it's it, it just was a way to be to be a little bit nuanced and, and keep more. You know, usually, mo- in most situations, both sides like the idea of more money being kept between the two people, even if they're no longer going to be married. Than you know, going to the government for taxes, um, and so you could use that and kind of um, massage that into a settlement. And and sometimes that was how you get to yes, um, but that's not that's not the case anymore. So we just have to use different kind of creative strategies to, to get people to a settlement that they're um, you know, on board with and, and satisfied with. Well, I think it, uh, this has been a really important, important discussion. And it's, it's important when you work with a divorce attorney that it, it will be someone who both can explain to you the nuances and really look, put their um, feet in your shoes and really look from your viewpoint to get the best outcome. And the role of the financial planner um, is that in so many cases, spousal support is transitional, like you mentioned. It could be very easy to become um, used to that spousal support that is going to end at some point and really put off planning for the time when it ends. And the role of the financial planner is, um, you know, if consulted during divorce, is to hopefully help to get the, the best outcome for you. Um, but then over time, they can be someone who can be a support for you to plan for that future period of time, even if it's three, five, or 10 years away, so that you're not kind of left hanging with a lifestyle that is used to the spousal support and no game plan for how to manage afterward. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I found I found really three kind of crucial times is, yeah, to help you figure out what kind of settlement is going to work for you going forward during the case is a great time to have the help of a financial professional. And then right after you've entered a judgment, oftentimes that will have changed the recipient's financial situation drastically, where now all of a sudden they're getting all sorts of money, say, in spousal support, um, but they're not used to that being something that just they 
have to attend to or things like that, or they may have gotten a big chunk of, you know, assets from the asset um, distribution, or frankly, they may have been saddled with a lot of debts out of their divorce. Right. And so all of a sudden you've, you've been given this entirely different financial situation heaped on your plate. And in a lot of situations, maybe if you weren't kind of the financial guru of the family, you know, then the, it, you may not even be used to having to deal with that type of things. And so that's a time when I love to get financial professionals involved with my clients and kind of put them in their hands and say, look, you know, she will help here. She will help you um, form a plan for how to go forward. And then as you say, your homework done, because there are a lot of, you know, you need to change beneficiaries. You should probably update your estate planning. You need to make sure that things are retitled. So they're not owed to you, but hanging out with, you know, if you don't do that homework, you may or may not do the assets. In, in none of that stuff is intuitive and none of that stuff is the kind of stuff that people have probably ever done or, you know, done it's in a long time. A little bit too. Yeah. Yeah. What's you, the, you don't, what's the you third don't, time? Yeah. Yeah. And then, right. And then, you know, and then as time goes on, as you're maybe reaching the end of your spouse support, or as you say, you know, you are, it's going to be another adjustment, just like it was an adjustment when you first became divorced. And that's again, a time where, keeping a good trajectory and having a good plan is just so important. And that's what a financial professional can, can help you do. I love it. For those of you who are listening, hopefully this has been helpful to help educate you on the possibilities of spousal support and some of the nuances. Of course, our discussion then, you know, is generalized based on location. It's, there are so many unique and personal circumstances in anyone's financial life, especially um, when going through a divorce. So let this be a launching board for some of the conversations that you may be having. Hopefully, you know, educate yourself and know that you have the opportunity to really be a proactive participant in your financial life during and after divorce. And conversations like this one can be helpful. Absolutely. Peter, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate your information and insight. We'll make sure to have a link in our show notes so that you can um, go to Peter's website, which has good blogs and information and a little bit more about him. We really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much, Melissa. It was really great. I'm so happy to have had the opportunity. You can access our first two seasons of this podcast on our website at www.pearlplan.com or on Spotify. If you're interested in learning more about pearl planning, feel free to sign up for our newsletter also found on our website.